Hello and welcome to Careers by Design, the interviews. I'm Sharon belden Castingway, Director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Today I'd like to welcome Pete Ganbar, Class of 1988, Executive Vice President and Head of A&R for Atlantic Records. Pete, I understand that A&R stands for Artists and Repertoire, but to the uninitiated, can you explain exactly what that entails? Sure. Um, the the most simple way to define it is that the A&R people at a record company are the people who uh, sign the artists, who discover the new talent, who woo them, um, negotiate with them, sign them, and then oversee all aspects of the creative process. Great. Now, can you tell me a little bit about how you first got interested in the music industry? I, I have this vision of you, like, sneaking Billboard magazine into school to read inside your textbooks or something. Is that accurate? A hundred percent. You probably were there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, um, I discovered um, pop music charts and Billboard magazine and Casey Kasem's countdown shows sure. uh, when I was uh, when I was 13 years old, and it was almost serendipitous in that it happened on a New Year's Eve night when I was 13. And New Year's Eve, when you're 13, you're kind of in that netherland between you don't go to sleep at six o'clock at night anymore, but you also don't go out partying until two in the morning. So what do you do? And that night, I ended up. Um, just randomly turning on the radio and hearing the uh, the radio stations start playing the biggest songs of that year, and for some reason took out a notebook and started writing all of them down, turned channels to another station. They were doing the same thing, but the lists were slightly different, started writing them down there too. And by the end of the night, I'd probably done six radio stations worth of, uh, of year-end uh, song highlights. And then for some reason, got really, um, really excited and enthusiastic about being able to do such a thing. Finding out a few weeks later that there was actually a magazine called Billboard Magazine, which was the official trade publication of the music industry that charted these records every week. And so I didn't have to wait until the following New Year's Eve. I could actually go and uh, pick up a Billboard magazine and read it every week, which I started to do at my local public library in Rockland County, New York. Um, where after school, I would get dropped off at the library on Tuesday afternoons, which is when the new billboards came in. And at first, I would just devour them, reading cover to cover. Um, later on, I would photocopy the charts. A little later on after that, I started uh, you know, becoming very fond of some of the uh, advertising that the major labels back then would spend a lot of money taking out in the in the ads. They were actually artwork, um, full-page album art uh, promoting the releases. And don't tell my local library, but there was time to time where I would actually purloin a few of them, uh, bring them home, and um, you know, the, cut cut out the ads bring them home, paste them up on my wall of my bedroom, and end up with a faux record store in my bedroom with all these posters from the local library's Billboard magazine. So for anybody who's looking right now at that library's microfilm and seeing some pages missing, I apologize in advance. <laughs> so when the time came to choose a college, what made you decide to pursue a liberal arts degree and why Wesleyan? 
Well, it's kind of funny you ask that because when I started looking at colleges, I had a very, very, um, <laughs> very high on my list of requirements was, does this school have a great radio station? Because apart from being interested in, you know, the charts and the songs, I also um, needing to make some money while in high school to buy these songs that I couldn't hear on the radio yet, um, I became a DJ and I DJed parties, sweet 16s and bat mitzvahs and graduations and things like that. And whatever money I made, I would go and um, buy records and um, be able to listen to some of the songs that I wasn't able to hear otherwise. So when I was looking at colleges, I um, really wanted to, uh, as DJing became a passion of mine, I wanted to make sure that the school had a great radio station. And when I visited Wesleyan, um, I went and visited the radio station. I said, yeah, this is, this is great. This qualifies, and let me apply early decision. <laughs> okay. And you obviously got involved with the radio station while you were on campus. Was that your main activity? Did you have other things that you were doing? Well, first day freshman year, I knocked on the door of the radio station and basically said, I'm here. And they said, okay, whoever you are here, go in the back room and start cataloging some records. And I think 16 hours later, they had all left, but I was still there, you know, cataloging the records. And that um, was the beginning of kind of my four-year residency in the basement of Clark Hall, where the radio station used to be. And I uh, worked my way up to the board of directors running the music department uh, as the music director of the radio station for several years. And as graduation approached, how were you thinking about your future? What were your plans, if any, for right after graduation? Well, music business um, wasn't really something that people studied um, back then, not at Wesleyan, not at any other schools. Now, if you look at other schools have dedicated music business programs. Um, so. I, taking advantage of the liberal arts education that Wesleyan offered, I majored in English and I also got a certification in education and took part in the educational studies program, which no longer exists over there. But um, I did my student teaching in Middletown High School. I had a great professor named Marjorie Rosenbaum who taught us, you know, the, the, the intangibles that it takes to be a great teacher. And so I graduated with a tangible degree in English, for whatever that's worth, as well as a more tangible degree to teach. Um, but then, as luck would have it, um, serendipitously, uh, a friend of mine from Wesleyan had introduced me several years earlier to a friend of his from home. And that guy's dad was in the music business and had heard about me in a roundabout way and asked me if I would be interested in interviewing for a position in the music business, uh, which I did knowing that if it didn't work out, I would have this education degree that I could take out at any time and go into a classroom. And uh, luckily, my first job in the music business, which I had to take um, – three weeks before the physical graduation ceremony because the guy who offered me the job said, you have to start now or I'm giving the job to somebody else. Hmm. So I commuted from Middletown for a few weeks into Manhattan and, um, you know, prior to actually receiving my diploma, started working 
in the music business, knowing that if it didn't work out, I'd, I'd have this backdrop um, that I could fall back on of the education and as well as the English degree. So tell me about those early days in your career. What was the position you were hired to do and how did that develop over time? The first um, job that I was offered was to promote records to radio stations. Obviously, every time that you hear a song on a radio station, somebody, especially um, current songs, uh, it's somebody's job to convince the music director or program director of that radio station to play that song. And that was my job for an independent label called TVT Records in Manhattan starting in the spring of 1988 um, to try to convince music and program directors of college radio stations similar to WESU all over the country to play the records that TVT was releasing. And uh, I started doing that um, like I said, a few weeks before graduation, and within a few months realized that I absolutely hated it. Hmm. Um, I didn't like the work. I didn't like the uh, the structure of the label. It just didn't seem like if this was the music business, maybe I had signed up for the wrong thing. So what did you do next? How did you get out of that situation? Luckily, I got a phone call from the same guy whose friend uh, was my Wesleyan roommate. Um, he had gone to another school, but we had become friendly through our mutual friend. Uh, and he said, you know, my dad is starting a record label, and he'd like to meet you. I've told him a lot about you. So I went and I met his father, and his father was starting this new um, record label, which strangely, was an instant major label. It had uh, several hundred million dollars of funding, and it was going to compete with the Columbias and the Atlantics and the Warner Brothers, you know, at, at their level. And he offered me a job after a few job interviews to be not a promotion man, which I was doing at the independent label, but to be an A&R person, which is like I uh, opened this conversation up, with that's the people who discover the talent. And I was hired in the spring of 1989, less than a year after I graduated from Westland, um, to be the rookie A&R person at the new label that he was forming called SBK. What accomplishment are you most proud of from those early days at SBK, which I understand eventually merged with EMI? You're correct. EMI invested... Um, in the company and uh, was able to eventually buy it out. And so SBK became a wholly owned subsidiary of, of EMI, but that didn't happen until later on. In the, in the early days, I think the thing that put me on the map, uh, you know, ironically is something that, you know, when I tell people they laugh, but you know, you gotta get on the board somehow. I was working for several months for this new label you know, just trying to find some new talent and, and develop some new artists when the head of the label called me into his office and handed me a movie script and said, please read this movie script. We need, desperately need a hit song to tie in with this movie. And I was very excited thinking that I was holding the script of The Godfather or War and Peace or some other, you know, profound future cinematic moment and I got out of his office I turned the script over and it said Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> and 
I said, okay, I'll work with it. And uh, I had a uh, rap group that I was developing at the time, and I called them. And I said, how do you guys like to have a song in a movie? And they got excited, and I sent them the script. And the next day, they sent me back a song called Turtle Power. And uh, that little song ended up selling 25 million copies and went to number one all over the world. And at the age of 23, I sit back in my in my chair in my office saying, this is the easiest job I've ever uh, seen, <laughs> you know, in my life. Right. Uh, I had no idea, but at least that got me on the map with an early success in doing A&R. Now, as I understand it, EMI shut down around the time you were 30, is that right? Correct. Yeah, what happened was SBK had uh, some very, very big success, and EMI had owned two other labels, a label called EMI Records and a label called Chrysalis Records. The three labels, including SBK, merged in the mid-90s and got really, really big, and then imploded from the sheer size of the, of the three labels. Um, a label is only as good as the hits that it's having, and we got cold at the wrong time. And eventually, uh, Thorny MI, which was the parent company from England, came in and decided to shut the entire label down uh, in, in North America. So did you see that coming, or did you have a game plan for what you do next? I didn't see it coming and had zero game plan. Okay. So what did you do next? Panicked. Um, I, you know, starting at 22, right out of college, I never really had to worry about a job. And here I am now. It's 1997. I've been out of college for close to 10 years. Um, not only that, but I've been, I've gotten married. I have a child. Um, and now what? Now what are we going to do? So uh, I started running around and um, trying to find people who would be interested in interviewing me for an A&R position and uh, ran into several people and had several interviews. And ultimately, that process led me to the man who ended up becoming my mentor in the music business. And that's the legendary Clive Davis at his label, Arista Records. I understand that one of the things that you worked on subsequently was Carlos Santana's album, Supernatural. Can you tell me a bit about how that came to pass? Yeah, it was actually a very interesting situation because I had been working for Arista after a series of very, very difficult job interviews. And by very difficult, I mean, Clive would say, well, what have you signed? And I would say, well, I signed X, whatever the act was. And his response would be, I hate them. What else have you signed? <laughs> and I said, well, I signed Y and Z, too. And he would say, well, they're worse than X. It was, you know, the type of... Uh, you know, CIA tactic that I think lesser men probably would not have recovered from, but luckily I had some resilience. And after a series of very, very, very tough interviews where if I were him, I would have no right uh, offering me a position, uh, I guess something happened where um, he saw a little bit of potential in me and he offered me a position. So I started in the fall of 1997 and Clive had just signed Carlos Santana to Arista after having signed him 30 years prior to Columbia. And 
Santana had gone to the highest highs and had really fallen off his commercial successes at the time and hoped that a reunion with Clive would reverse his fortunes commercially and help his band and his music get back on uh, pop radio, popular radio, commercial radio, top 40 hit radio. And I was the new guy at the time, and um, Clive never asked me to uh, to help. He never said, hey, new guy, figure out Santana. Clive doesn't work like that. Um, but I was six weeks on the job trying to find a project that I could sink my teeth into. And I thought Santana would be a good one, not because I was the world's biggest Santana fan, but because I realized that it was a creative puzzle. And my job as an A&R person is to help put creative puzzle pieces together. And I realized that Clive's vision for signing Santana was the big bet that if we get this right, um, everybody knew Santana's name. They just had not been given a reason to buy his new music in a while. And so I kind of took it upon myself without being asked to say, all right, if this were my puzzle, how would I solve it? And I thought and I brainstormed and I came up with a few ideas that I ultimately put in a memo to Clive. Um, and it was six weeks after I started and I wrote a two page memo and I mapped out my idea for what I thought it would take to bring Santana and his band back to prominence. And I suggested um, to Clive in this memo that we emulate um, the success that another record was having at the time that was a collaborative album featuring the legendary guitar player B.B. King. And it was called Deuces Wild. And it was selling really well, but it didn't have what we call, quote unquote, hits on it. It wasn't going to get on contemporary radio. I thought that if we took the same concept, fine-tuned it, went out to artists who were the young popular artists of the day who had gone on record saying that they were inspired to make music as, um, as young musicians growing up because of Carlos Santana, his guitar, and his albums, then maybe we could entice them not only to collaborate with Santana on a new record, but more importantly, to write hit songs in their own style that would help Santana with their endorsement help get him back on pop radio. And so I got really excited because I thought it was a viable idea. And I wrote this memo to Clive and I put it on his assistant's desk, um, went back to my office, waiting for the phone to ring to hear what he thought of my idea. And after a week, when the phone did not ring, I realized that for whatever reason, I was not going to hear um, back from Clive about my memo, whether he didn't like it, whether he didn't read it, whether he decided to do nothing and, and see what happened, I'll never know. But in probably the most pivotal point of my career, I had a choice a week after this memo went into his office. I could get very upset and angry. I could cry. I could quit 
I could complain, or I could say, you know what? It's a good idea, and I'm going to do it anyway. And if Clive wants me to stop, he'll tell me to stop. So I picked up the phone. I called Santana's manager. I introduced myself to him since we didn't know each other. And I said, you know, I have an idea. And he's like, wow, great. What is it? We, we've been waiting for somebody from the label to, to call us with a concept. And I told him the concept. He said, that sounds great. Let's go. And I just started doing it. And Clive never told me to stop. Ultimately, he jumped in. Uh, we did it together. And we ended up selling 28 million albums and winning nine Grammys. So that was a lesson to me. Um, don't wait for somebody to validate your own opinion. If you believe that it's the right idea, do it. And if they want you to stop, they'll tell you to stop. Tell me what led to your starting your own company, Pure Tone Music. Well, you know, you look back on a career and you realize the things that you did right and the things that you did wrong. Uh, shortly after the success of Supernatural, Clive Davis got fired from his, the label that he founded, Arista Records. The man who was brought in to replace him um, you know, made a lot of promises to me as an employee if I had stayed on with Arista and didn't go with Clive to his new venture, which I chose not to do, I stayed on at Arista. That honeymoon lasted around six months until I got fired. Then, having uh, rebuffed Clive's offer to go to his new label, I burned the bridge and had to find other, you know, another employer. And I started working at a label called Epic Records in 2001. Um, I worked there for around three years. It was not a great experience. And when the woman who hired me got fired, her entire regime uh, ended up getting let go, and I was uh, amongst them. And what had happened when I was at uh, Epic was that the fire and the passion and the enthusiasm that I had had at, at SBK and at Arista with great leaders like Charles Koppelman and Martin Bandier and, and Clive Davis, I didn't have at Epic. And I ended up losing a little bit of my fire and my flame. And I realized that uh, at the age of you know 35 or whatever it was uh, at the time, I was an overpriced uh, executive who was uh, a little cold without any hits for a while. And in the music business, hits are currency. And I realized that in order to um, get my passion back and, and get the flame relit, I would have to do it myself. And I looked in the mirror one day and said, okay, now we're gonna see if you're any good. And I decided to start my own company. And that was the birth of my own um, company, Pure Tone Music, in the fall of 2003. How did you get involved with American Idol? Well, a funny thing happened on the way to forming Pure Tone Music. Um, I formed this company as an independent company that would focus on signing unsigned talent as well as unsigned songwriters for music publishing. And... Um, I started Pure Tone by uh, launching a talent search where I flew to a dozen cities all over the country and had artists uh, audition and showcase for me in places like Detroit, um, Cincinnati, Ohio, Minneapolis, Washington, D.C., Cleveland, Ohio, places like that. Um, 
And as I was getting ready to board the plane to go to my first market for my first showcase, my old mentor and friend Clive Davis called me and said, hey, what are you doing? I understand you left Epic. What are you doing now? And I said, uh, forming my own company and getting on a plane to go to Minneapolis to find some talent. He said, well, in addition to doing that, how would you like to make some records for me as an A&R man that I could hire independently whenever I wanted and I needed help making records? And I said, you know, that sounds fantastic. And he said, great, you're hired. Let's do another Santana record together. Let's do, I have an idea to do a duets album with Kenny G, the saxophone player. Mm -hmm. um, can you do it? And I said, sure. Who do you want on the duets album? He's like, that's your job. You figure it out. I said, great, no problem. So when I left on my first um, trip as the president of my new company, Pure Tone Music, not only was Pure Tone Music now a production company for new artists, a publishing company independently for new songwriters, but most importantly and presciently, now a uh, A&R consulting firm that was not bound to any specific label, but can, could be hired by any company to help A&R projects and make records and come up with concepts for artists that those labels had on roster but couldn't figure out. And so Clive became my anchor client uh, as an as you know, in this new career of mine as an A&R consultant, and Clive was making all the American Idol records. And one day he called me and said, I would like for you to meet Simon Fuller, the man who created American Idol, because I think that your skill set would be great in helping us make some of these albums. So he introduced me to Simon Fuller, and the first album that I made um, for the American Idol franchise was in 2006 for the artist Daughtry. Mm. Um, and we sold 5 million albums and had... Uh, six singles off that album. Right, right. Now, how did you ultimately, uh, moving forward a little bit, get involved with Lin-Manuel Miranda and Hamilton? Well, ironically, Lin, um, I didn't really know a lot about Lin at all. Um, fast forwarding a couple of years later, my daughter, who was around 12 years old at the time, and who is ravenous, in uh, her passion for musical theater, kept hawking me to get her tickets to go see In the Heights. And not only did I know, not know back then who Lin-Manuel was, I didn't know what In the Heights was. And she hawked and hawked and hawked and said, no, it's great, we have to go see it. So I got tickets for all of us to go see In the Heights and um, was so blown away by what I saw that when I read the playbill and I saw that Lynn had graduated Westland, the next day I called the school and I said, hey, you need to introduce me to this guy because what he's doing is so next level that I just, you know, as a creative person who works uh, inside the music business, I have to know this guy. He's just, his, his talent is too special. And Wesleyan was kind enough to make the introduction, and we met. And I said to Lynn, I said, I know we've just met, but one day I would love to do a project with you. And fast forward, um, you know, six, seven years later, whenever it was, maybe five, six years later, uh, I now have my new position as the head of A&R at Atlantic Records. And I heard that Lynn was workshopping his new show, which, of course, was Hamilton. 
and we met up again. And this time he brought his crew and I brought my crew, the head of Atlantic and some of my colleagues. And we had remembered our initial meeting and we sat and we talked and we continued to have more meetings and attend workshops of Hamilton and readings. And um, eventually we all decided that we wanted to do this project together. And that's how Atlantic got into the Hamilton business. So tell me about your work on the mixtape. Well, originally, when we met with Lynn, he said to us, I don't want to do a cast album. I want to do a mixtape. And meaning that even before the show opened, his original goal was to get the songs out um, as performed by other singers. Um, not dissimilar to how he discovered Jesus Christ Superstar and some of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals in the 70s as a child. Um, you know, he probably wasn't a child in the 70s. I'm dating myself, but in his uh, parents' record collection. Mm -hmm. the, um, uh, so that's what he thought should be the initial path to getting the songs that he had written for the Hamilton musical out to the world. He eventually changed his mind, but the idea of a mixtape was always front and center. And as we made the recording of the cast album, part of which we recorded here at Atlantic Records in the Atlantic Records studio, um, we kept thinking, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could get um, John Legend to sing a song as George Washington? Wouldn't it be great to get Ja Rule and Ashanti to do Helpless since Ja Rule and Ashanti are who Lynn was listening to when he wrote Helpless. So we were kind of taking secretive notes um, in the background while we were making the original um, cast recording, knowing that uh, this was a viable idea, um, even if the timelines had shifted a little bit. So once the cast album came out and uh, exploded and became the big success that it became, then it was evident to all of us that there was a hunger not only for the cast album, but for you know the show itself and for the songs from the show itself, which made uh, the concept of a mixtape take more urgency. And so we took out our secret notebooks and started making calls and started lining up sessions. And um, finally, after... Uh, a solid year, year and a half, uh, we just put the uh, mixtape out in early December of 2016. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that at the time you went to school, there weren't degree programs in music business the way that there are now. Do you feel like your liberal arts education differentiates you from others in the field? Do you feel like you use your liberal arts education on the job? Yes, all the time. And uh, now as a parent of two teenage daughters, um, you know, one of whom is in college and one of whom is applying to colleges, uh, it's very, very important to me that they strongly consider liberal arts education. Because even if one of my daughters is interested in occupational therapy and she can go and she can do a five-year program in occupational therapy, but what happens in year two or year three if she decides that she no longer wants to pursue that? She's boxed in and would probably have to change majors 
uh, and potentially change schools. Um, with a liberal arts education, you are giving yourself a broad-based um, springboard um, template from which to build on, however you go. So when I look back on my courses at Westland, some of the most memorable courses have nothing to do with what I do now um, as a you know an executive inside of a record company. But I refer to them probably several times a month. You know, I took a class on the complete works of, um, of Faulkner with Joe Reed. I still talk about that class. You know, I took a class on biography writing with Phyllis, Phyllis Rose. Uh, I still talk about that class. You know, I took a class on African-American short fiction with a professor named Herman Beavers. I still talk about that class. I still hand out some of the books that we read in that class to my artists who come into Atlantic and we're talking about music. And it reminds me of a, of a story called Cry For Me by an author named William Melvin Kelly that I read in this African-American short fiction class. Um, so I think that if I had gone to a music business program, um, the, the things that I had to draw on would not be nearly as rich um, as they are now, thanks to the liberal arts uh, background that I got from Westland. Pete Ganbar, class of 1988, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This has been Careers by Design, the interviews. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us attract new listeners by leaving a comment on iTunes. And check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Gordon Career Center website. This podcast is produced by Sharon Belden-Castingway, music by Andrew Santanello.